Hi, Dr. Brian Rosino, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansons and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years and are happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at drskipren.com. That's drskiphrin.com. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with a listener calling in, Dr. Brian Rizzino out of D.C. has a practice out there and had some questions on neurofeedback, adding to the practice, maybe even some biofeedback. Uh, Dr. Rizzino, how are you doing today? Hey, guys. How's it going? A little sunny out here. I hope it's nice out there. Going well. It's nice down here too. Dr. Rizzino, t- tell us about your practice out in D.C. How long you've been out there? What are you focusing on? Get clue us in. Yeah, sure. So you know, I came out here in 1998 because I just had to get out of Chicago. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago. Actually, love going back there. And uh, I came out here to do my internship at Children's National Medical Center, and I graduated with my my doctorate in '99, and then I did two years postdoc, and was on their faculty for. Uh, about three, four years, something like that. And then I've been in private practice since 2004 here in uh, Northern Virginia. And my practice is primarily pediatric. I went to one of the few programs in the nation that that has a pediatric branch to their graduate program. A lot of times people have to get that training after they graduate, but mine was baked into the program. We saw, I actually started seeing clients from in the first year. I was a 22-year-old seeing parents, you know, which was like, talk about, a little bit of a head trip, but it was great because I got more and more and more training throughout that five-year program and it, and it set me up well for afterwards. But since 2004, uh, been in private practice and I, I generally, I see a wide range of people. I mean, you know, I see the kind of general anxiety, depression issues a lot. I also see a lot of ADHD, neurodiverse kids that may have autism, autism spectrum issues, uh, they may have other learning issues too, like dyslexia or, or you know, other kind of complex learning problems uh, or other developmental issues. And a lot of times what I do, I'm doing, I'm doing individual therapy, but I'm also doing parent consultations, working with parents on how do I understand this kiddo? What are, what are the behaviors telling me about, you know, their underlying neuropsychology, their underlying neurodevelopment, and what's like the most effective way to intervene with them? Because a lot of the parents that I have, and I have to say this, this is sort of a refrain of mine, is like the typical parenting manuals and books that are out there, they don't apply for you. <laughs> you know, so we're going to have to get you something that's more unique and tailored to some of the issues that you're, you're dealing with here. And I think for a lot of parents, that's actually a relief because they, they feel like they're failing and they don't know what they're doing. They're, you know, they got a kid that's a handful and they're stressed out. And so we're really working with them about how do I understand this kiddo's behavior and what's the most effective way to engage them so that, you know, that, that they're happier and healthier and we also have a, a better relationship. So I do a lot of that consultation, some family work and some individual work. And, and now actually it's kind of interesting in the last, I've been doing a lot of assessment as well, but like in the last year, that's really picked up for whatever reasons. I don't know. I do have a background in neuropsychology, but I'm not board certified. You know, I did uh, rotation at, children's hospital in neuropsychology. 
I've done rotations through neurology clinics and stuff like that. You know, took a bunch of classes and stuff like that. So, so a lot of what I do is informed by brain behavior relationship, you know, an understanding of that. And I think parents like that, you know, this is the kind of day and age of the brain. I don't know the time magazine called, maybe it was the last decade, the decade of the brain or something like that. I'm probably butchering that, but you know, there's so much more that we're learning. And so being able to work that into understanding the kids that, that I'm seeing is really important. I think parents, parents really appreciate that. So that's a big part of my practice as well. Appreciate you listening to the show. Yeah. What are, what are some of the initial questions that you had? And we'll see if Dr. Skip can knock them out of the park for you. Yeah. So definitely, definitely. So you, I understand, look, listen to some of the podcasts. So understand that like your neurofeedback program is nothing added. You're basically monitoring the, you know, the electrochemical signaling, the EEGs, it's going on in the brain. You're not sending any kind of signals to the brain. You're more monitoring it. The right. feedback is really kind of, a, you know, an operant conditioning feedback, right? So it's basically like reward-based, you know, for certain behaviors. Can you tell me a little bit, like, what one of the things I try to understand is, like, are all of these traditional neurofeedback programs the same? Or are there certain, are there differences that, like, we should know about? Because, you know, as a consumer, you know, as, as a practitioner trying to decide what, what's the best program, it's a little, it, it's a little confusing, right? Much less you get the, you get the parents, you're trying to guide them through all kinds of quote unquote brain right. training programs and, and, you know, wanting to be able to talk with them intelligently too. When, just to clarify, so when you say program, you mean the, the physical products that we have as opposed to a training program. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm talking about like, yeah, what is, if you could give me an idea of like the apparatus, you know, like the, there's different systems, software, equipment. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and there yeah. are, there are different ones. Um, I think with Pete and Laura and I, we're in, in the Stens world and Bob Thatcher world for both hardware and software that, that goes back to the the program in that we all jumped into the STENS uh, training programs. And, you know, we've talked a few times on how we all got there. Just so, so that's a little tiny background on it. But, and, and let me clarify too, is my practice is predominantly neuropsychs. And so how we use all of the hardware software for the most part is to do QEEGs. So we're doing brain mappings and, seven out of 10 times, it's, it's to complement or supplement a neuropsych uh, and for various reasons, uh, right? Like we've had, and, and we've talked about this on the show before, but we've had folks come in that have uh, pretty significant TBI, traumatic brain injury, or and or uh, maybe some neurodegenerative diseases. And so folks are older and, and just having difficulty. And, and it's really hard for those folks to sustain four or five, six hours of testing as it is for most eight-year-olds, as you already know, Brian. But with that said, we tend to go with the brain mapping, get a, a, a literally a, a really good picture of what's going on, and then kind of complement it or anchor it up, shore it up with some testing so that we do have the quantitative testing as well. All that to answer your question, that we still do a little bit of neurofeedback. It's just our practice is, is relatively limited. And it's been even more limited through COVID, but we're probably three, five, three to five people a week 
that's our practice because again, the focus is, is predominantly with the neuropsychs. Uh, we're talking about expanding, right? As we open up here, you know, and the country gets back to whatever, some semblance of what we used to do and get more and more people in throughout the office. So we're thinking about expanding, but there's some pretty decent providers out where we are uh, and they use different software. So again, trying to get to your question, but I think we're comfortable with the equipment that we have. Uh, certainly there's a, a pretty steep learning curve. The foundation is in the trainings and in what the heck neurofeedback is and, and how it works. And we were just talking about this last week on the show that we all went to our first training session. Laura's was back in 2000 and then she went again uh, more recently, like 2017 or 18, but we all left the five day training course going, well, it sounds like a really interesting thing, but I don't know what the hell just happened in the last five days, meaning it's such a vast area of, of learning and understanding. You can certainly get a, a good foundation or, or footing in that five days. I just think if you continue on, or if you find it's something that's interesting that you, you hook up with a mentor that can kind of walk you through the process. Cause it, it's one of those things, at least it was for me where I don't even know the questions to ask yet. Cause I I'm, I'm just kind of starting in here and then, you know, you open the door and you walk in and you're like, Oh, Holy crap. Uh, what about this, 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 and this, and that's just for the last five minutes. There's, there's a lot to know. So anyway, the, the software, again, we, we go with Stens and then we go with Bob Thatcher's software too. He's out of Florida. Um, and, and those two systems work very well together and it's pretty impressive, but you did a decent job too of describing what neurofeedback is. And that's that there's a reading of brainwave frequencies from electrodes that are put on the scalp and there's a conductant, which might actually be the worst part about neurofeedback as far as side effects. And that's, you get gunk in your hair, right? You get this kind of gel that sticks in your hair a little bit, but that's the conductant from the scalp to the electrodes that then feed into the apparatus, apparati, right? And then that then kicks into the software on the computer, which the provider, neurotechnician, whatever your phrase might be, is controlling or manipulating in, in a positive sense, the thresholds. And so if neurofeedback's about regulating or, or improving timing of these different frequencies within these thresholds that are set based on norms that have been established, you do reward when the brain is operating within these thresholds. And so, as you mentioned with operant conditioning, and there's a little classical conditioning in there too, that the brain learns through rewards that, hey, I'm getting this right. And then through the removal of the rewards, it gets the idea that, oh, okay, I need to be back there to get this thing I like. And then over time, that behavior becomes a learned behavior or automated, as we like to say on the show, as far as brain functioning. The interesting thing is folks can get this, folks' brains can get this relatively quickly. Pete can attest to this too. Uh, it's that you need repeated exposure to maintain what's been learned, right? So folks can be done in with a 20 minute session and like, wow, hey, check this out. Or we've had reports back where people are driving home and they're like, holy cow, like this, this, and this happened. And then two days later, you know, they need a refresher. The brain needs to, to again, be reinforced. A couple of things. One, it's not regulated, right? So anybody can buy an amplifier, set up a shingle and say they do neurofeedback. You have to filter the, the competition. Uh, number two, to filter it, uh, the BCIA.org site, they are the, 
the closest thing that you can get to um, credibility that says, hey, this, I'm looking for somebody in Washington, D.C. that's credible in neurofeedback. They are the site that give the board certification that says, hey, you know neurofeedback. Stens, Stens has been around since the early 70s. And the equipment that they have, what you want is something that can filter out all the other frequencies or energies out there that can, that can give you a bad reading. So Stens has very, very good equipment, uh, quote unquote, FDA approved. Um, and then Bob Thatcher, he has the software and the database, the normative database when you do QEEG. Whatever normal is, you compare your QEEG against his database of, of brains that don't have the symptoms that the client is that you just did the QEEG. So that in a nutshell, there's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things. I think you start with BCIA, who, who is recommended there, then look at the equipment, you know, FDA approved and work, work your way down. And all the people that we've had on our podcast uh, John Anderson is a longtime trainer for Stens. He's on the neurofeedback side. Uh, we had a biofeedback trainer last week. That's kind of what we're trying to do with these podcasts is try to clue in the, the audience. What is out there? How can neurofeedback help or complement you? Because as you both know, you can take a pill and get rid of the symptoms. But once that the half-life is over, the symptoms come back. What we're trying to do is get something here where you can train your brain, get rid of the symptoms, get rid of them for good. Skip, how'd I do for being the layman of the, the three of us? Pete, you've been listening all this time. Pete, Pete does the uh, intros and then he, then he uh, lets, lets me and Laura go on uh, answering a three second answer in five minutes. Right. But Pete's gotta, been listening. You got to watch Pete. He's like a sponge. <laughs> you know? He's like, he's quiet, but he's deadly. You know? SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> Well, well put, Pete. And yeah. and that's part of the show too, right? Because I mean, Brian, you're on here, you're a provider, and then we have all kinds of, uh, you know, parents listening. And so there is a two-part question there, right? Like how do people find a good provider? And then as a provider, if you want to get into this, what do you do? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, absolutely. And, you know, parents are often wanting a gold standard, you know, is what's the gold standard as far as this goes and you know take for example the kiddo that's got the adhd then it's always about what is the diagnosis but it, it really a lot of hinges on what are we what are we going to do next right what 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 do we as parents need to do and they want to know what the gold standard is they don't want anything less than that obviously and so sure. they'll ask if we're talking about medications what i then go to is i go to the you know methylphenidate i go to the stimulants or the dextroamphetamine you know and I will name a couple of brands, Concerto, Ritalin, whatever. Don't worry, I'm not getting paid for that, that plug. Um, but they'll I, want to know that. And, and those are the ones with the largest databases, those are the, with the largest, you know, the best efficacy. Similarly, wanting to do that with something like e, you know, EEG feedback. I mean, you know, because then, you know, it's like, then you have to ask, you know, parents ask questions sometimes of me. And I'm like, wow. You know, that's a great question. I, I didn't even think to ask that question, you know, and, and sort of want to go back and, and try to figure that out. So, and I think, like you said, Pete, it, there are, it, there's a lot of diversity in providers, you know, and in program integrity. Are they really doing what they say they're doing? But I think you answered my question fairly well as far as the BCIA. 
I mean, that's helpful because that's a more of kind of, even though they may not see themselves that way, they may see themselves as kind of a regulatory body or somebody that kind of plays that role, right? Also, the, the QEGs, it's, you know, when you're working with kids, you know, again, you guys work with kids, I don't. I just pay the people that work on the kids. You know, the QEGs give a voice to people that don't have a voice, right? When you ask a kid what's wrong with them, you know, that they can only answer subjectively. You know, parents want objective data. And when you show them that heat map, the brain map that can pinpoint where the dysregulation in the brain is, I think that makes the, the parents and the provider at least put a needle on the compass to figure out what's north and how to, how to, how to treat the, the kid. You agree, Skip? I do, Pete. Um, and with that in mind, traditionally psychology and and you know, correct me, Brian, but I think I'm on the right path here. Is that di- diagnostic processes is is a big deal, and that's because it's kind of built into what's going on. And and certainly everybody knows the lingo of diagnoses and and the DSM five, etc. Ultimately, where neurofeedback separates itself a little bit from just that that aspect or that world is neurofeedback's symptom driven and so it, it, it certainly neurofeedback it, you know capital n if it's its own institution doesn't really care about diagnoses and i don't mean anybody in charge like the bcia i mean you know at, as a treatment modality its concern or or its in, in, intention is to just correct brain timing and what we see as, as people and parents and therapists are behaviors that emanate from brain dysfunction, or as Pete was saying, hot areas and cold areas on the map. And so that's what I always find kind of interesting slash liberating slash uh, kind of cool is certainly you do a symptom checklist and you're, you know, you're getting a history from parents uh, and then you ask a kid and you're like, Hey, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know. My mom makes me come here kind of thing. So you can jump from that, it's certainly a good place to start when you have symptoms, um, it, it at least points in general areas of the brain that you can maybe start. But once you do a mapping, and again, as Pete said, you're, you're literally seeing hot areas, cold areas, you know, um, that are either under or over functioning. The implications of those situations would result in the behaviors you're seeing probably, but you start going after the dysregulation and again uh, get the brain working in concert with itself all kinds of things start to happen certainly and, and hopefully the symptoms dissipate right that's that's job one and pete you could probably speak to this too you also see secondary and and and, and ancillary kind of benefits right so the story i've used before is we had a kid coming in that was really anxious um kind of you know clinically anxious and doing all kinds of things, trickle tillomania, pulling hair and all kinds of good stuff like that, eyelashes. But anyway, um, saw her, you know, two, three weeks after she had started in the waiting room um, and was talking to her and good kid and asked her what was going on and asked her how it's working. Didn't say word one about anxiety. Don't even know if she knows that word, right? Other than hearing it. And she said, well, my handwriting's a lot better. Nobody came in because she had poor handwriting, but it's more to the point of, Hey, we got the brain working in concert. And when you start under training or up training, you know, certain hot, cold areas, it, it's a simple way to put it that I like to think about it is it, it leaves resources for other areas too. So if you have a hot area that's burning all the resources, it's going to inhibit other functioning. 
And in this case, we're talking about handwriting, but we could also be talking about, you know, kind of fine motor skills and manual dexterity and things like that, which have pretty bigger, bigger implications. But anyway, Pete, what about you with what you're seeing as far as, you know, folks coming in and then benefits they're getting from it? Yeah, I can speak freely because my sister's not here right now. Uh, <laughs> no holds barred. You know, <laughs> A lot, lot of kids come in and uh, ADHD is a broad brush. And I uh, think what the, the, the biggest pleasure that I see is when the kids come in, they can't sit still in the seat. And once the QEEG is done and you figure out what the protocol is to, to train them on in that first session, you turn on the Netflix and they're watching the Netflix and then it stops and then it starts and it stops because they have the cap on, they're watching it on the screen. And if their brain's doing what it needs to do to regulate itself, the Netflix will play. And when you see somebody that's been bouncing around, there's all, all of a sudden eyes forward, leaning over in the chair, paying attention. To me, that that is huge. And when the parents see the child after the session, the smile on their face, that's what makes it worth worth it. Objective data that shows that the client's getting better. That's, especially with kids, when they can't describe what's wrong, uh, using the QEG and the neurofeedback trainings, I I think is a big plus. That's what gets me fired up. There's probably a lot of variability in response, right? Like some people may respond after the first session, you know, like you said, on the drive home, they, you know, things are going on, things are popping off. and then other people may take several sessions, I'm guessing, right? Parents, parents all, like with therapy, parents want to say, how many sessions? <laughs> you know, it's like, not, oh, okay, you're asking small questions. How many sessions? How many sessions before, right? So like, what do you, how do you answer those questions? Hey, what do you, what do you guys do? I, I certainly have an answer, but what do you guys do? Um, and and I, I'm going to go second because I think we well, might see broader range, but anyway. Well, Laura hates that question. <laughs> to be put to be put on the spot i think I, with, <laughs> with, with, I mean with neurofeedback what what i've seen is i mean there's a lot of adjustments that come into play because no no brain is the same i mean the the frequencies are popping all over the place you need to make adjustments what might work well in the left frontal cortex may not work well with the next kid that comes through so there's some adjustments threshold adjustments reward adjustments tweaking but after i think the most the the most that you will see people are going to get an effect from it you'll see it after the first couple sessions and as time goes on it'll wane away because the effects are less you really see them at the beginning and they and they trail off but there are certain cases where the first two or three sessions, you know, you have to get in that rhythm and that routine to figure out what will work for this person. Because you really are doing a lot of fine tuning uh, with the software. Skip, what's your answer? I gave the, the psychologist answer. Uh-oh, I got to give it a, <laughs> What's the, the psychologist person? answer? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> Five minute like... answer to a 30 second question. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty, yeah see people again for a variety of issues and we see so few people for neurofeedback that our, our uh, ranges on on sessions vary but within the field with I'll quoting everybody somewhere between 20 and 40 is a reasonable ballpark for a start but as Pete just said 
you know, and, and we're given the impression here that every session is, you know, fantastic and a home run and people are running out, clicking their heels. Sure. Yeah. Within this, within this adjustment air quotes, right. Adjustment um, phase, which kind of runs the whole, the whole time that you're doing the neurofeedback. Uh, sometimes you're not exactly, you know, hundred percent. And so you have to train something back down or someone will come back in and say, Hey, um, I, I was fine when I left here, but then I got really anxious that night or something. Right. And, and, it's information. And the good news about when things maybe don't go perfectly is that since it is a training, it tends to wear off just like it would if it was a positive effect. And that's why you continue to come back. Uh, the idea of, hey, you're doing something that's not working out well for the client or the patient, that you're not doing that again. So you're not training that you're realizing and it's more information, right? So you're like, okay, that didn't work. So that means we're looking at maybe something a little differently. We've also had- Which is uh, true of therapy in general, right? It's true therapy in general. The, I guess, distinguishing factor here is you're seeing things live on how brains are working. And so you're getting immediate feedback, just like you do in your office when someone, you know, throws something at you from across the room, right? That's pretty immediate too. Right. So you are getting that. And then just to finish out the answer, um, we, we've had folks come in that are 80 and 100 sessions, you know, TBI, you know, longstanding brain injury kind of things. And so it takes longer for the brain to kind of, get its legs, if you will. Right. So it's, it's a matter of training. Um, but yeah, I think Brian, or I'm sorry, Pete brought up a, a really good point in that. Yeah. You're starting somewhere. And then because everybody is individual in their brain functioning, where you go, isn't a set pathway. You have a guideline on where you're headed, but there's a lot of adjustment involved. And we had somebody on pretty early, uh, Michael Cohen, who I've, I've trained with a little bit and, and does a really good job of uh, explaining all this to, to new practitioners. And he's down in Florida too. Uh, he's on the Atlantic side. Anyway, I, I've mentioned this to him that it feels like a little more like an art and he didn't, he didn't like that answer, but I still, you know, get that sense. And what I'm trying to really express is, Hey, it's not, you know, push this button and then that button and then this button. Yeah. You have to push all those buttons. You have to know, what this all is encompassing that goes back to kind of neurological training a little bit, like what's working and what's not working. What's that brain region known to do and those kinds of things to where you can kind of be in the middle of this practice, maybe untethered. And then that's where the practitioner expertise comes into play. And so again, that just backs up to the other statement I had of, you know, five, five day training is just going to wet your whistle. There's, there's a lot to learn, as you've said, we're still probably in the decade of the brain and I think we're going to be for a long time. Right. It's, yeah. it's where we're headed. Right. A couple of questions. You said, you know, talk, talk a little bit about like, when you say session, are you looking at 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour? And what is, what, what's that look like? I mean, I know, and I know let's just the caveat that it could be different depending on the person, but in general. Well, I'll, I'll answer real quick and then let Pete answer uh, from Chicago, but generally if you're established, meaning it's not the first session, which is relatively lengthy because you're getting a pretty extensive history and communicating and talking, and then there's the introduction to the process, right? All that. So the first session's hour and change probably, uh, maybe more. Uh, and then subsequent sessions, when you're kind of in a groove as you would if you're going to somebody's office for you know the 30th time. Then you're sitting down, you're getting the electrodes put on. It's probably five, 10 minutes, depending on how efficient people are uh, with attaching electrodes where they need to go. There's obviously some work done in between sessions by the practitioners, right? And then you're getting 
things lined up and the person's doing their session that, and they're called trainings, by the way. So the industry does refer to a session as a training. And it's the idea that the brain's training itself. And so those can go anywhere from 25 to 30 minutes. At least that's what we do. Uh, sometimes shorter. Sometimes folks like, uh, you know, again, TBI, 10 minutes and they're maxed and you start to see it, right? Because yeah. yeah, their brain's tired. So it can vary. Uh, but that's about it. So maybe a, a full session would be an hour on the clock, but maybe 25 minutes of true training. And then there's some sometimes counseling work in there too. Hey, how'd last week go? How are things in life? What's up? What do you make of that? You think it's related to the training? Go ahead. More than once a week? Yeah. So two to three times, depending, right, Pete? Twice, at least twice two, a week. At, at least two preferred. It, it, certainly initially, right? Well, here, we, we talked about ADHD the way that I've seen it work is client comes in, they need to be assessed QEEG that can take 40 minutes to an hour to, you know, to get the reading, get the diagnosis. Neuropsychologist needs to look at it, make the diagnosis, set up the protocol. And once that's done, the technician gets the information. Then you set up two trainings a week and let's just say ADHD that typically runs about 20 sessions. So you'll do 10 sessions, midway point, do another QEG to show progress. Okay, great. This is working objectively and subjectively. Another 10 sessions, final QEG, and quote unquote, you know, done. You know, that, that, that should be it. So 20 sessions and three QEGs for ADHD. And do you have, do you have, be, I mean, as you go along, I mean, there's this question of external, you know, how, how, how does it generalize? Like, okay. And that's great. I think that's great. If you have like a QEG uh, follow-up measures, right. So that you can establish a baseline and so forth. Do you do behavioral reports? Do you get, you gather, I mean, I'm with kids. So, you know, I'm going to ask about mm-hmm. school, how are they doing in school? Can we get a teacher input? Like, is that something you guys do too? Or what kind of are there other things you draw from as far as progress? Dr. Lord does the, does the whole thing. Okay. Does the whole, the whole thing. My, my end of it is, you know, before COVID for the athletes, the student athletes out there, because the concussion protocols that are out there are so antiquated. Parents want to know when can they put their kid back on the field? And I saw there was a great opportunity for kids to, you know, if they're going to do a physical evaluation at the beginning of their sports year, they should do a mental evaluation so they can set up a baseline uh, in case there's a trauma event, they have something to compare it to. So COVID happened and now we're getting into the anxiety, depression, you know, side of things. There's plenty out there. I guess it comes down to efficacy. You brought up ADHD of all the things neurofeedback can, can train. The efficacy is the highest for ADHD. So you get the for the kids that are having the problems that they want to try a holistic approach with neurofeedback, ADHD is highest, you know, up on the list. Now, Dr. Skip, we didn't talk about uh, biofeedback. You got any thoughts to, to throw out there? Yeah, sure. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just say something about the ADHD thing too. But yeah, yeah let's talk about biofeedback, which is the foundation for neurofeedback, right? Right. So uh, with ADHD, and, and again, to kind of put it up there as this relatively non-invasive, symptom-free, again, relatively so, treatment for ADHD, we have to start with this idea that ADHD is a thing, meaning a singular thing, and it's just not neurologically, neuroanatomically, there's, you know, geez, a couple 
dozen at least handfuls of combinations, if not you know ex ex exponentially more, that yeah. lead to the behaviors you see, right? And so just to compare and contrast, um, and, and what Laura and I were taught back in the day was that there's generally a couple types of ADHD, and that's that's generalizing like crazy, but we're talking genetic and then maybe acquired, and then that creates a third subtype of both, right? But that medications tend to work a little better with the genetic variety. And the analogy we always got was the gas tank's empty, right? So for whatever reason, your genetics don't provide the certain neurotransmitters that allow for, you know, whatever, self-control. Uh, and so, you know, the medications are putting gas in the tank, whereas acquired ADHD is analogous to there's a hole in the gas tank. So the the, the pathways between hubs or structures aren't necessarily working efficiently, like some kind of hypoxic event, right? You know, you have a code blue and the kid's coming out and he hasn't been breathing. And so he needs, you know, some kind of supplementarily oxygen and then you have lack, lack of oxygen. So they get them all good and, and send them home. He's a healthy baby, three, four, five years old. When they have to go to school, they're noticing that there's these behaviors that are hard to regulate. So anyway, so that's, that's a more of an acquired situation that would result in these behaviors. For my buck, uh, eight, uh, neurofeedback just gets after a wider range of behaviors that are called ADHD, right? Air quotes again, whereas meds seem to be a little more focused on what they provide because of the nature of what they are, right? And so they're not, they're, they're not necessarily as effective across the board. And so Hopefully that doesn't get us, you know, too fired up or anybody too fired up about it. But back to Pete's point, neurofeedback's pretty effective for this big umbrella of ADHD. Also, back to what Pete had said about biofeedback, and we've had a couple of folks on recently that are old school. And so they came up with biofeedback, as did Laura. I didn't necessarily, but that the foundations of biofeedback are the same foundations of at least the ideas behind neurofeedback that the body can regulate itself and that through our conscious with biofeedback through our conscious application of interventions we're affecting unconscious functioning like heart rate right so we can slow our heart rate down which then helps with blood pressure and ultimately mood and things like that so that that idea carries forward to neurofeedback that the brain can retrain itself because it ultimately knows what to do it just needs the reinforcements because life's happened. And so it's out of whack a little bit, right? The timing's out, out. Um, and, and life does that to our brain. Certainly if you get hit in the head, that's a clear indication of something that's happened. But, you know, exposure to neurotoxins, um, environmental things, nature, nurture, right? So home life, you know, is, is are, are there things stressful? Uh, certainly today, meaning these days, there's lots of stress and anxiety. The whole world got turned upside down in what we do. And that's anxiety inducing. When you start isolating people, uh, they don't do as well. And certainly kids are pretty, pretty ingrained in the social learning, right? Everybody on this podcast has been doing it for a while, you know, so we can maybe, we can maybe wait it out. But if, if you're in fifth grade and, you know, you're sitting at home for a year, that's a pretty significant chunk of your time that's, that has to respond to something. So anyway, there's other factors is what I'm getting at um, that would allow for both neurofeedback to be helpful, but other things too. Um, heart rate variability was something that was talked about on last week's show. And Dr. Gewurz went into, they have a clinic out in uh, San Diego and they focus a lot on that with their kids as well as other biofeedback techniques. 
as a foundation for their neurofeedback, right? So they meet all kinds of kids, right? Pete, am I remembering correctly? But they meet all kinds of kids with anxiety and other things too. Basically instilling or training these kids, uh, people on how to take care of these things on their own. And Brian, I'm sure you can attest to this too. There's something that happens exponentially when folks get the impression or the sense that, hey, this stuff that I'm doing is working. It takes off. It's no longer they're sitting in a room with, you know, some weird therapist person, their parent makes them go see. And now the things that they've engaged in or, or have practiced, they're, they're living the effects and benefits of it. And things just kind of take off this idea of starting with biofeedback, Pete, just to you know get back to you on that. But like, I've been thinking about it since last week of really starting to lay a, a more solid foundation of that in our neurofeedback instead of just jumping into the neurofeedback. I know Laura does it and, and I don't know if you do or not. Well, Dr. Laura, she's trying to get every session started out with that because, you know, I think one, one ounce of control is takes away a pound of anxiety. You know, yeah. that, that, yeah. that, that, that feeling that you have control, you know, you guys are talking about kids. Seaburn Fisher came on the show two, two or three casts ago. Am I right? Skip, did she say that, the amount of kids that are going to need special education are going to go up by 80%. Does that ring a bell? It was a pretty big number. What I remember is that, hey, everybody better get somebody on board for their, their special ed programs. They better ramp these up. Staffing okay. up. Rent, you Staffing know. up. Yeah. And, and special ed, yeah. Yeah. And, and not that everybody's going to, you know, scary. retreat, you know, as far as cognitive functioning, but just that this thing that we've been doing for the last year is going to have significant effects. And I think that's already obvious. Yeah. You know, but as we get back into school and then everybody's kind of under the same roof together, then you get to see these things a little differently. Brian, I had a question for you. I know, you know, just on reading, reading your website and things like that, that you guys are doing more than just talk therapy and not that that's not a, not, not a good enough or solid modality, right? Like we, that's what we were trained in too, but I think you're doing other things on top of that, right? We do. We use something called Alpha Stim, if that's what you're referring to. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and it's it's basically brain stimulation at a, a micro level. Batter, it's a battery operated device. So okay. you, know, you get some AA batteries in there so to give you an idea. The the voltage on that is okay. extremely low. But basically, the, the idea in a nutshell is that you're stimulating the brain uh, so that it induces alpha and beta waves. Uh, into the brain and, and get you more into a relaxed, focused state. What it hooks up to the ears, there's a little bit of conducting uh, fluid and there's a lanyard, you can hang it around your neck. It's, it is FDA approved and, and, you know, FDA approved, I think you guys had a discussion right. about this, what that, what that really means, you know. Uh, FDA approved does not mean of efficacy necessarily, right. right? People often make that mistake, but it is safe and it's something that, you know, does what it says it's supposed to do. It's, it's approved for insomnia, okay. anxiety and depression. And they do have some sort of, and I may be butchering this a little bit because it could have changed in the last year or two. They might have more publications on ADHD, but there is some on that. I'm a little bit more reluctant to suggest that for ADHD, the things that I've found it really, really works well with is insomnia. Um, kids and the ADHD kids who have that insomnia, because you know that sort of like it goes always travel travels so much with ADHD. Uh, share with you a case. This is a family. The, the kiddo is was not sleeping well for the, the family said forever. 
I don't know if that was their kind of, you know, delirium of, you know, you know, there's so much distress around this, but like it had been years. The kid had had real difficulty sleeping hours and hours and hours, you know, and always needed a parent to be with them and fall asleep with them. He might wake up if the parent goes out and then he comes into the parent's room, you know, during COVID they're like, the parents are working from home. They have more than one kid. You know, I mean, it's just like you can see the bags under their eyes and, you know, their, their loose grip on sanity gave him the, the, and he was like, yes, please. This kid really wanted this. And uh, we gave him the alpha stem and within about, it wasn't right away. There was some benefits early on, but it took about three weeks for his, his, him to get back to a regular sleep schedule. And now I see the kid and, and he's not even using the alpha stem and he's sleeping like a champ. I mean, every night, actually we have the dad use it now because the dad hasn't been sleeping. There's, uh, there are dramatic examples of that that are, that are really cool to see. Yeah. And I see, and then also cases where people have sort of, you know, they have more generalized anxiety. They might have specific anxiety, like test anxiety, that sort of thing. But it's a lot of times it's, it's generalized anxiety in some cases, uh, OCD issues. It can help with some of that stuff because there's that it's not with OCD. It's there's, there's the obsessions and the compulsion, but there's other, there's like a lot of other anxiety that also goes with that too. So it can help as a complement to that, you know, that work. Yeah. Dr. Skip, what, what else we got for Dr. Rosino here? Do we, do we beat him up pretty good? Can I ask a question? Uh, one, one last question, which I know yeah, you may, you may. Parents will ask me, you know, um, how do you know, you said that it, that, so there's variability, right? Uh, in treatment response and, and, and levels of efficacy. How do you know if it's not, when it's not working or somebody's just not responding? We do neurofeedback, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I answer that, I uh, just want to say this to you, Brian, that we're often unaware we're given a five-minute answer until Pete reminds us. So that's Pete's <laughs> probably primary role. He does a lot of things, but that's probably the one that makes the show. Just that timekeeper, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, it's otherwise it's snoring, you know? <laughs> so, and, and how many times as a psychologist have you filled up somebody's voicemail just, you know, answering yes or no <laughs> questions? There's that, you know. Pete, it's not just us. It's not I just hear you. psychologists, you know. I hear um, you. So, if, you know, it's not a panacea. It doesn't work for everybody for, you know, all reasons. It just can't. But, and, and I'm going to try to answer your question, but man, way more often than not, it's effective. And, and, and so I, I will answer your question because there's times. Um, there's folks, you know, quotes, sensitive brains, whatever that means. Um, there's folks that, you know, the, the, the trainings have a, higher impact quicker and so you, you have to be in, in my in my opinion and experience you have to be pretty well pretty well trained and know what you're doing to be able to handle somebody that might react to a training session differently than the person that was even just in the seat you know half hour before them um, and and say hey I'm getting headaches or I'm uh, getting dizzy or there's this or there's that and so it requires just a finer degree of reaction, ultimately everybody reacts to neurofeedback. And, and I get your question, hey, what if it's just not working? Um, I'm gonna let Pete you know, answer that too from his work experience. Maybe because of our small uh, clientele, right? Again, three to five folks a week, we have folks that are pretty invested in it. 
um, and certainly not to take any heat off the practitioner, but when folks are into it and they're coming regularly and they're committed to it, we've found that it works. Um, when, when it doesn't seem to work, and again, don't, don't, don't hear this as, hey, like it, it's not me, um, but when there's not as much maybe of a commitment, folks are coming intermittently or it, you know, it, you need to do other things too. So if we're doing neurofeedback, but you know, just pick some first thing popped in my head. So make what you want of this, but if you're drinking like a fish every night and, you know, not sleeping or your diet's not, you know, changing at all, or you're still in some, uh, just unhealthy situation, whatever that might even mean, like physically or emotionally, those things are obviously going to counteract or, or even undercut any kind of training, you know, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. So again, don't hear that it's, you know, it's not us, it's you guys. It's just, there's a lot of factors, but you do measure it. And, and here's where Pete can answer for the, for his practice, but we say, Hey, like two to three sessions, if you're not seeing something, we got to have a talk, right? Something's not working. Doesn't mean it's you, but let's, let's figure out what we're not doing right. Because you have to almost see effects that quickly, right? From what you're doing with the training. So, and you're saying it doesn't mean you're not responsive. It just means we may need to tweak things to make it sure we're hitting the right things. Which, you know, and, and, and I want Pete to answer too, but it's also why it's super important to have a dialogue. It's not just, hey, don't just drop your kid off for their 30 minute training session. Like, we got to know what's going on here uh, in between, right. you know, last right. session and this one, because there is a lot of fine tuning. What do you think, Pete? Guys, we got to remember, we're dealing with millions of volts here, right? Yeah. And depending yeah. on the experience of your technician, a placement incorrectly here and there can mean a world of difference, you know? Then having a neuropsychologist oversee that tech to see what that problem is, that's kind of where the BCIA comes into play, you know, are they accredited there? What kind of experience does a technician have? Really that comes into play, especially with a QEEG, you know, you, you don't get those signals, right? I mean, garbage in, garbage out. You could get a C or red because, uh, oh my God, they got the cap on halfway wrong, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's something that, you know, come into play. So like Skip said, you should see, improvement in the first two or three sessions. You should feel something. Let's throw out the uh, placebo effect, okay? Two or three sessions, you should feel something. And if anything, you'll feel like, uh, in rare cases, a headache, okay? that That's a clear sign that, hey, you know, you know we're, we're doing something incorrectly. So like Skip said, two or three sessions, we're dealing with a millionth of a volt. The sensors have to pick up that electricity so somebody's coming into uh, a treatment or training and they have moose in their hair, right? That, you know, that'll affect things. So, so many little things come into play to, to, uh, to get good data, but that's a good thing. It's objective. It's data versus, Hey, how you feeling today? Okay. Let's talk for our play. Who know how you feel, you know? Well, but what you're saying too is, you know, you need somebody who, uh, can gather the, the data with as little error as possible and then knows how to interpret it, right? Correct, correct, yeah. right. And that's where it, Dr. Laura comes in. So, you know, she always lets me speak, uh, you know, to these topics, right, Skip? Yeah. She you. Hey, Pete, do you, so, so do you think therapy is playing Uno for an hour? I just want to Yeah, clarify. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get that, you Lexi caught that, you caught that little jab there? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's the only thing the insurance will pay for. (laughs) Therapy? Uno. Uno therapy. It's a new thing. Yeah. One last question. I got one last question for for famous last last words from a psychologist. Yeah, right. Uh, are, Are you thinking about integrating neurofeedback into your practice? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've come in and out of it in terms of my thinking. I would love to, you know, it's, it's more a matter of time uh, yeah. that I have to invest, you know, because it's, it's, it's its own discipline, right, in some yeah. ways. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could speak this. What, what, what would you tell somebody, like, it would take in terms of investment of time? I'm not so worried about the financial piece. I know some people are, but, you know, because of the equipment and stuff like that. But what would they be looking at, you know, to get proficient? Wow. Where's Laura at? Yeah, no kidding. Um, Laura says she's still learning. Yeah, Laura would say what I'm about to say. Like, I still don't think I know what I need to do. Just proficient. Just proficient. Yeah. I'd feel at least a good six months to a year to get you. And and within that time, again, I'm I'm super conservative in this regard, but within that time, working with folks and having a, a direct feed to some kind of consultation with somebody. Like you could, you could do stems training. You could get it dialed in. You could probably be up and running and know where electrodes go and all that good stuff with practice. And then you could be doing some Z-score training, which is kind of, you know, hey, we're, we're training you towards this database as opposed to maybe being a little more free-flowing. Um, and, and you could do those things. But I'm thinking at least six months to a year where I would feel comfortable be doing it maybe untethered. What about you, Pete? Am, am I wildly uh, inaccurate in that? I mean, you, you really have to be hands-on because you'll forget this stuff right away so you have to constantly train on it and i think all in you're probably 20 grand with the equipment and supplies that you're going to need to get started yeah it's and then financial investment too yeah and then you know if you're going to be the one doing it you know it's look the talk therapy that's where the money is you know that you got to keep that coming in if you can find a tech get them trained up to have them come in and supervise them. Uh, Somewhere along the way, you're going to have to give up some um, therapy hours in order to supervise in order to grow to practice. And that's where a lot of people run into issues, you know, the catch 22, you know, what, what, what do I do? So we're still trying to figure it out. Now, is there a, is there, if you were to point somebody, Hey, here's the, you know, like certificate program. Is there a, you know, this is a curriculum that you'd be looking at. Once you're done with this curriculum, you can feel pretty sure we've covered what we need to cover. And then it's about continuing education from there and and supervision. Is there something like that? You can do the STENS program at STENS-corporation.com. I think it's 1200 bucks, I believe, for the neurofeedback program. You go through that. We had John Anderson. That was a couple podcasts ago. You can... He was our trainer, uh, Skip's trainer, Laura's trainer, my trainer. You can hear his approach. And then you can take the BCIA certification test, which certifies that you're, what's the word, knowledgeable in neurofeedback, Skip? I think that's what it is. Because remember, it's not regulated. You got that's exactly knowledge. They should advance uh, knowledge. Right, right. So unless you're doing it every day, because you can find on Facebook and eBay all these used – neurofeedback amplifiers that people, oh, I'm going to get into it. And they didn't, they weren't hands-on every day. And then they just put it up for sale. So it, 
It is, it is a commitment. It is a commitment. It's also the future. I mean, heck, if, if Elon Musk is getting into the brain, uh, you know, it's got to be the future. Don't tell Laura I said that. <laughs> it is, though. I'm with you, Pete. No, I agree. I think that's a fair statement. And even within neurofeedback, uh, just with the discoveries and innovations that are occurring in neuroscience, like, you know, no kidding, daily, uh, it changes your thinking about things. And so then that allows you to maybe try some different approaches. And I just got something from Bob Thatcher's group today or yesterday, Pete, you probably did too. Yeah. Uh, they're version 3.2 on, on something that, you know, kind of changing the world and how, and how we see things through the software, right? There's just innovations happening all the time, but like anything, uh, a good solid foundation and what the heck this stuff is, is what you need. And, and it, it takes, it takes a minute. That's for sure. Let me ask you an unfair loaded question, and I know you're trying to get a second repeat, but yeah. Do um, a third try. Keep going. <laughs> why don't they fund research on this? Why is it so hard to get funding? Wow, that's that's the long the long answer. Laura and I have been asking almost every guest, um, and Bob Thatcher knew a lot. He was on the front lines. Um, what I've been reading, kind of secondary to to our guests that we've been having on, is that big pharma has a pretty good foothold, toehold, whatever, on, on research in the way that the industry is focused. Um, and, and it's because of the way they're set up and it's all a really good fit without, you know, getting on the soapbox, right, about meds or any of that stuff or just big, big pharma. I'm not trying to go there. More so that it's hard for neurofeedback to fit the mold of what's funded. And so that's the gold standard of a double blind study long-term, um, you know, treatments, uh, those kinds of things, placebo effects. It, it's hard to set up neurofeedback to fit into that mold is one of the answers, Brian. There's, you know, 10 more, uh, maybe even yeah. better, but that's one and it just doesn't fit the mold. Um, that being said, there's all kinds of small scale studies that are going on and folks are coming up as Pete's quoted with some really strong uh, numbers right? They're, some, they're being quantified here that, hey, this stuff's effective. And that's been going on for a long time, right? There's not, there's not a lot out there that's saying, hey, neurofeedback doesn't do anything. The, the majority of it says uh, that, hey, this stuff is effective. It works. And, you know, there's probably, again, a, a dozen reasons why it's just not more. Well, people are lazy. They want to take a pill. They don't want to work out. You know, it's a training. Nobody wants to train. Give me the pill fine. The effect wears off. I'll take another pill. You got that too. You know, it's, it's easier that's to real. write a script. That's, that's in there and it's real. Uh, the two big drawbacks uh, besides headaches that Pete mentioned is you get gunk in your hair and it's a financial and time commitment, right? You got to be somewhere two, three, anybody that's done chiropractic work, you got to go two, three times a week. And it's, you know, it's not all that, like, you don't have to, you're not doing calisthenics or anything, but you got to be somewhere. It's got to be in your schedule and it requires a commitment. What is your relationship with TikTok? Do you want to? <laughs> it is. Do you a, have a TikTok for kids out there? What What's going on? It is a complicated, love hate, passion filled relationship. No, it's it's. Yeah. So basically, what I did was I started a TikTok account that is has a therapeutic angle. It's clear, you know. So what I say on the TikTok account is. You know, I talk about psychology, family, children, relationship. I don't give personal advice, but I do make videos. Yeah. Right? 
because people they're going to ask you, what do I do in this situation? It's like, I, I don't, you know, I can't, first of all, I can't do that. Second of all, yeah. a thousand things I need to know to answer that question. Well, what I do is it's, it's basically advocacy for mental health, advocacy for therapy, advocacy. This is like, these are the signs of like when you might think about therapy, or this might be the experience of somebody going to therapy. These are some of the misconceptions about it. These are some of the difficulties that somebody might have, you know, in thinking about going to therapy, all these different things to make it more accessible. And the idea being that I actually got, kind of got sparked by a New York Times article, which, which was talking about this kind of migration of therapists onto TikTok as a response to the pandemic, because there's so many mental health needs are just, they just sort of exploded. As a, as a sort of a testament to that, going on to TikTok, these therapists made a few videos and it's just like they exploded because like there, there's just such a, there's such a need for people to know what to do and how do I manage this anxiety? What do I do when I'm not feeling control and all these things? And so for me, it was sort of like, you know, why, yeah, why not? Why not get involved in and also try to make it accessible to younger generations, you know, make it, I think the generation Z, they're more open to it too. It's less of yeah. a, it doesn't have the baggage. You know. uh, how, how can we find this, Doc? Let's, let's give you a little plug. Right. That was my five minute answer. Um, at, <laughs> it's at Dr. Rosino. So it's at DR period. And then R A Z Z like zebra I N O. And yeah. then uh, your, your website, we're in a DC area. We need a little help. How, how can we find you, Doc? Uh, so it's drbrianrosino.net. So it's all one word, no periods or anything like that. Dot net. And then at my TikTok is at dr period Rosino, R A Z Z, like zebra I N O. Doc, th thank you for being a listener. Thank you for coming on. And that goes for anybody out there that's listening to the, to the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, guys, can I please close the show? Yeah. I'm, I'm being quiet. I'm, I've shut them out. <laughs> Dr. Rosino, awesome. We'll try this one again. Hey, guys. Uh, our, Good talk with you guys. I'm sure we could talk longer. Much to oh, we, oh, we, delight. We, much to your delight, Pete. <laughs> Get you in the fetal position <laughs> by the end of it. <laughs> Cue the music. We'll let it that out in post. Give us a narrow noodle. A noodle, a doodle for your noodle. Ow! All right. Yeah, uh, here we go. Look at that one take professional. Wow. That's the first first person doing one take. There you go. That's right. Well, he's a professional. Ow! You know, he's got it. <laughs> what I say? <laughs>